The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Closer. 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 If I sit up straight, I'd actually be right on mic, but because I'm a chronic sloucher, because I had five kids and no longer have core. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Piki mai kaki mai tēnā koutou katoa. This has gone by lunchtime. It's the morning of Monday, June 19, 2023. I'm Toby Manhire. With me are Ben Thomas and Annabelle Lee Mather. You may know us by our stage names, wet, whiny and inward looking. Thanks to producer Te Aihe Butler and thank you to our benefactors and our muses, the spin-off members. Today, we're going to talk about gangs and gangs and gangs. We're going to talk about the scrap for the rural vote, the Greens tax policy, Ming Foon if we get time. But first, let's talk about recession. Uh, we've been talking about recession for a long time. Will there be a recession? Won't there be a recession? The economy shrank by 0.1% in the quarter to March, which means two in a row, which sounds the recession bell. Grant Robertson said it was uh in large part caused or tipped over the mark by the cyclone and by the Auckland floods. Nicola Willis said it was a red light warning and the result of economic mismanagement. Ben, it's also what Adrian all wanted, isn't it? So in a way, things are going swimmingly. It's a shallow recession. It is It is a shallow recession in that nobody's reflected or learned anything. <laughs> <laughs> um Recessions are really interesting because a lot of the headlines came through like New Zealand is now officially in recession, but we don't know that. What we do know is that New Zealand was officially in recession, right, in the March quarter. Unless they unless they adjust it, which they did the the, the quarter before, so maybe we could if they adjusted it towards zero, then we could have not been in recession after oh, all. Well, that's right. But at the, at right now, it seems as if we were in recession in yes. March. We may or may not be in recession now. No, probably And not. it re- really is kind of, you know, one of those like very postmodern sort of things where mm. we're, we're sort of like, well, you know, how, how are you coping with last quarter's recession right. so far? Yeah, um, yeah it, it is sort of interesting that, you know, the, the numbers play such an important part. You know, the, the government doesn't want this number saying that we're in a recession uh, in the same way that, you know, there's been some talk that, uh, they they sort of they they scheduled the uh, return of the fuel excise um, or, the, or the dropping of the fuel excise yep. subsidy 
so that the, the newly imputed inflation figure wouldn't come out until after the election. Now, whether that's true or not, it's sort of, you know, statistically convenient for the government because there is kind of a psychological power in these statistical indicators. Right. It's a bit like sometimes people talk about something hitting a thousand or a million just because uh, yeah. it's a round number. It doesn't, it's not meaningfully different from one fewer, but it feels different, that, right? That's right. If we had discovered that we weren't in a technical recession you know, for the first three months of this year, would that have meant that our sort of, you know, our qualitative experience of it would have been any different? Um, and, and and no, but this this allows National to sort of say it's a flashing red light, uh, you know, whereas, you know, a deep recession, of course, would see much more sort of public conjecture about the nature of things and, you know. <laughs> well, it's also true, isn't it, that those of us who are old enough to remember a a deep recession and you know the the, the shops sort of empty shops and general like proper malaise it doesn't it doesn't it's not good there is a cost of living crisis but it's not that yeah no i think that's right i mean the, it's always a bit funny there's you know the during the gfc which was the last sort of you know um kind of hefty sort of recession yeah. uh here um i remember it was around the same time that i went into the public sector to sort of weather the <laughs> the effects of of recession, and and I, I when Sounds I when I arrived down in Wellington, cocooned in the public you're thinking sector. That, you're thinking the same now. Is that what you're saying? It's it's always got to remain an option. I understand there's a few vacancies have come up, but the you know there were. I think when I moved down to Wellington, I was reading a copy of the Dominion Post, and it said. Well, you know, it doesn't feel like we're in a recession. All the cafes are full, you know, people are still spending. And I'm like, well, that's obviously true in Lampton Key, right? Like, you know, state sector salaries haven't been cut. So, you know, again, it really depends on who you're talking to because in a shallow recession, some parts of the economy are hit much harder than others. You know, some parts of the economy are doing just fine. Um, and, and so it really depends who you're talking to. Um, and, and I suppose that's one reason why the numbers are so important. Um, because if you were just sort of looking out your window, depending on where you are, you might not notice it at all. Do you think it makes a difference with an election roaring towards us, Annabelle? I, I think that for large seg segments of New Zealand society, like they kind of live in a permanent state of recession, you know, mm. cost of living and the cost of living crisis is like a sliding scale. So I don't know if it really makes a huge amount of difference if you're in technical recession or not. I think it's probably more important for the for the politicians in terms of the way they craft the narrative. But it is, um, I understand, forecast to end um, in the next quarter, which falls before the election. So there's an opportunity for Labour to like pump up their own tyres and talk about what a great job they've done of um, navigating the economy through through COVID. Mm. I mean, it does, it does, doesn't it kind of show up that, you know, people say technical recession, and I guess sometimes you have to be careful with that as a politician because you don't want to sound as though you're trying to minimise the reality of it. But at the same time, if there had been, uh, if, if, the, if the economy had grown, by 0.3% and then fallen by 0.9%, that would be worse than a... We wouldn't have had a recession, but the economy would be have been in a smaller place. I think the numbers that most voters tend to watch aren't, aren't you know, the ones that are, that are coming out about 0.1 or yep. whatever. It's more like the cost of groceries, the cost of filling up the car, all of those sorts of things. And at the moment, they're still going up. 
and and the other thing that so far there hasn't been any real effect on employment and yeah you know that that's what tends to mark out the real sort of human misery mm. of of recessions yeah. as you know as we popularly understand them which is you know people lining up for food parcels and getting turfed out of work, you know, in small towns being sort of, mm. you know, having their main industries shut down. And, and they've so far sort of, you know, so far we've largely avoided that, which... Um, which has put us with. into recession, you know, like the recession is the cost of, of um, keeping the economy pumping enough that you don't have, like, massive unemployment. And then trying to avoid stagflation. So if Adrian was timed it right, then... The you know the, the great golden goose of the New Zealand economy, the housing market will start to recover, <laughs> and everything will be sunny again. Let's talk about gangs. It's election year, and it's as as, as reliable as Rip Day and Rosettes is politicians talking about cracking down on gangs. A portiki in the Bay of Plenty was the focus for much of the week just gone. The president of the Mongrel Mob Barbarians was killed. Suspected to be a a rival gang hit, and his tonguey was in town, which were an influx of gang members and a whole lot of police as well, and the town coming to a standstill in some parts, schools closed. A few shootings, bit fire, a bit of fire. Um, some fire, and the politicians were, were all over it, and Chris 1 and Chris 2 competed to be more cross with the gangs. David Seymour used the word subhuman and compared a portiki to Mogadishu. Rawiri Waititi and the Apotiki Mayor David Moore both said, stop turning all of this into a political football. What did you make of the coverage and the debate? Well, I, I think that the Mayor probably has a better understanding of what's going on than the two Chris's. I thought it was interesting that the media seemed to be much more preoccupied with the with what was going on at the Tangi than the actual murder itself. Like, right. least we forget, he was actually a murder victim. And there was a really good um, article and stuff over the weekend that talked about um, Steve and, and his mahi in the community, how he had recovered from P and was working with the local Te here social service provider um, on um, um, anti-meth campaigns and that sort of thing. I think... When uh, what what I found interesting about the media coverage was doing a comparison with other t gang related funerals that have been held over the years, and um, one example came to mind, which was Connor Morris, mm. and the stark difference in the way his funeral and procession was reported by comparison to what happened with Steve's. It seemed to be far more empathetic to him as a murder victim. Um, you know, it talked a lot more about, you know, gang gangs and rival gangs coming to pay their respects, whereas in the case of Oportiki, it felt far more historical. Um, it's also frustrating that you know, when we report on gang issues that we tend to ignore the underlying reasons that gangs were able to blossom in places like Oportiki in the first place and also the other issues that are going on in communities like that, like massive housing crisis there, the housing crisis as a result of the muscle farm that's been established through the, um, the uh, regional development fund, which is a good thing, you know, that they've got this employment opportunity that's about to happen but there hasn't been the extra investment around it so that locals don't get pushed out so 
it's shame that a shame in my view that there was such a narrow focus um, on just the gang funeral and the procession and not um, some wider analysis of, of what hap what's happening in small towns like Opotiki where there is a lot of gang membership. Ben, the National Party uh, came out yesterday on Sunday mm. with a new policy that would make membership of a gang an aggravating factor in sentencing, which, as many pointed out quickly, is already the case, the difference being that well, no, it's, it's, it wouldn't... It's different. It, well, it's different insofar as it doesn't need to be linked... You don't need to have been operating as part of the gang in the offence for it to yeah, be an aggravating right. so, factor. So, so currently, if your gang plans a robbery and then you uh, yep. are convicted, then your membership of the gang is, you know, part of that's an aggravating factor. Or if you do something as a crime in order to be a gang initiate, you know, that's part of your hazing or whatever, uh, that's then that's an aggravating yeah, factor. Here they're saying if you're a gang member, you get into a scuffle in town, you're convicted. Yep. The fact that you're a gang member makes that an, is an aggravating Irrespect factor. Ir yeah. Irrespective of the crime. So, for and, example, and, and, should and, we have as an aggravating factor driving a double cab ute around Ponsonby if it's never touched mud? I mean, we could add all sorts of different things as aggravating factors. And well, no, I mean, driving a double cab ute around Ponsonby should just be a crime. We right. need to criminalise <laughs> it first. <laughs> Make um, it make it strict liability. <laughs> so, so, like, just being in the being in the driver's seat is enough for a conviction. But in you know the rationale for this, and look, I, I think it. I think the it, rationale for this was to get the rationale, national cracks okay. down on gangs on the six pm news, which happened. Well, sure, but let, let, you know, Surely. but think about you know think, whether there's a you know justifiable philosophical sort of rationale for it. What they what they've said is you know that. Because you know, we know that fear of crime is 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 not as much, but for some people, more uh, of, of a you know an erosion of like lifestyle and well being mm. as crime itself. You know, if you're if you're genuinely in fear of crime every waking hour, you know your your life will not be enjoyable, right? And so that's one of the reasons that you know everything is a little bit wider than punishing people, particularly you know individually for. You know, uh, uh, do crime. we do we is like if you're scared of crime but you live in a place where there's actually no gang members, like does is it really as much of an impact on your quality of life? I mean, I th well, I, I mean, I think you know, in, in a subjective sense, I think it can be, but I think what you're talking about more is sort of areas where gang activity is rife. Uh, you know, what you know is that. I mean, and we all know this, right? If patched gang members go up and start intimidating somebody in public, the patch is part of the intimidation, right? That's what the patch is for. The patch is to say, don't fuck with me, you know. If, I if, think the patch is to symbolise membership. Of, but, but, of a and, criminal and, street yeah. gang, okay? And, 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 and so, that also has the thing of yeah. intimidating people. And, and, and so the, the rationale for this policy is that any time gang members commit crimes against the public, what they're doing is increasing the kind of aura of intimidation, of fear, of impunity, you know, that the gangs have. And and that's why it's an aggravating factor. 
you know, if, if, a, if an individual gang member gets into a fight in town, you know, hurts somebody, that adds to the generalized fear of patched people wandering around the town, right? So, I mean, you know, you can say, you know, it's, it's, it's not 100% robust, but, you know, you can see a kind of th a, a general philosophical thrust there. Um, I think that, I think there's about a 0% chance the courts would apply it. The, you know, it'd be the same thing as three strikes. They mm. would start arguing and whittling it down under sort of Bill of Rights implications. Um, but yeah, look, they got on the 6pm news. A lot of confusion. Uh, I, I noticed that one news said, oh, this is already the law. They bought into the labour line there. Uh, well, they've had two lines, one that it's already the law and two that it's a gross overstepping of human rights and a terrible policy, which is always like a, a very funny response for things by a gov from things by a government, um, which is that it's a bad idea and we're already doing it. I mean, there is I another... Think that, you know, the thing is that this policy is actually not going to make anyone any safer and it's not going to deter anyone from, from joining a gang. And it's a shame because, you know, like, there, there are significant gang issues in places like the Bay of Plenty on the Hui. We did a story um, last year about a, a young dad who had gone to a Fanonga's 21st and was um, murdered by a young mobster. And, um, and this policy would have done nothing to help save his life or to discourage that um, offender <clears throat> from doing what he did. I think if we really want to talk about um, uh, making people safer and making communities safer, um, we need to look at the whakapapa of gangs, we need to work alongside gangs, we need to take a far more holistic, not just a punitive approach, because in a lot of those communities, the gangs are the only show in town. There's not a whole lot of jobs or business or anything like that going on. The only way to earn a living is to to be a part of them or to have a sense of you know comradeship with those people. So, you know, how do we begin to do that as a society and have those discussions? Because ramping up fear and outrage from Queen's Arcade does nothing to help. Um, people that, that live in those communities. I think it's important to note, though, that this isn't all just, you know, hysterical fear-mongering. You know, it, it is it is true that the police blocked off State Highway 2 for, for most of a whole day so that a gang funeral could go through, so they could ride on both sides of the road, so they could rev their bikes, so they could, like, you know, have the road to themselves. I mean... The, you know, the, Isn't no, that what like farmers do when they like take up like block up all the streets when they do their tractor protests or what about just moving sheep around? Are those sheep patched? I mean, that's a question for everyone. <laughs> well, no, look, sh sure, but I mean, you know, well, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, and, and you, you could argue that everybody should have that right when a loved one dies that they get the whole motorway to themselves, right? Like, I mean, fair <laughs> enough. But, you know, um, you know, there nobody denied that, you know, sh shots were fired, that gang tensions were high, that people were scared. The mayor didn't deny people were scared. 
you know, he just said, oh, it's up to the schools if they want to close. I understand everyone's on edge. I mean, I, I guess... Now, of course, the mayor has invested... The mayor is interested in trying to lower tensions and doesn't want it to turn into a big shemozzle in his town. Of course he wants that because he has to deal with it, right? Because the government aren't going to deal with it. They're just going to invite the national spokespeople for games well, to another I think, conference I think and that, I think the other thing, too, which he, he talked about in some of his interviews is that, you know while it's easy to call these people subhuman, they are in fact human and they have to live somewhere. And if they're living somewhere, you want them to be an active part of the community and contributing positively towards it. And he talked about that. He talked about, you know, uh, an old lady fell over on the main street and a gang member rushed to her aid and helped her up. Someone's car got a flat tyre and it was a gang member who, with a broken arm who helped them put the new tyre on. There's been people talking about how when there was a a, a strike in, in Wairua, it was the um, mongrel mob down there who were running a food bank and helping to support families and stuff through it. So, you know, you can't just write them off as subhuman because they're not. Yep. You have to find a way to bring them into the wider community and offer them a better gig than, than what's currently. Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, the thing is the people who are victims of gangs are by and large gang members. <laughs> the, you know, Because the thing is in towns like Apotiki, Wairoa, places like that, you know, these aren't blinged up sort of Harley Davidson riding, you know, personal gym owning guys. You know, these these people aren't they're not living good lives, right? As, as we know, the gang leader was a, he was a he was a he was a victim of violence himself. Yeah, well, right? Morgan Godfrey made the very good point that you know that unlike other gangs that are centered around um, business or an enterprise, mongrel mob members and black power members they they tend to be. Um, unified through a, a common experience and the whakapapa of that common experience is being wards of the state and then that's become an intergenerational thing where you're born into a gang whānau and so it goes. Yeah, and but which doesn't mean that the culture around it is good, right? No, you but know, I think I mean, the, other, the other point that Morgan perhaps. made, which I think is, is, is an important one, is that the focus needs to be providing, as Morgan put it, off-ramps for people who are in yeah. those situations rather mm. than rather than adding more on ramps and some criminalizing and sending people to prison <laughs> likely is basically a very good finishing school for for exactly. becoming a, a gang member. Let's move on. Uh, the rural vote has been a, another real focus over recent times. Act have sort of had the running on it. Uh, they've got Mark Cameron, who's been one of their most effective MPs, um, who likes to remind everyone he's the only working farmer in Parliament. Um, they signed up Andrew Hoggard, which was in many ways like a kind of classic, looks like he'd been produced by a 3D printer for a National Party MP of the 1980s, it seems to me. He's quite he's sort of smart and reasonably, uh, he's got reasonably good uh, wry humour, all that sort of stuff, and he obviously knows the sector. Um, the Fed Farmer's pedigree, you know? The, yeah, the Fed Farmer's pedigree. The, the militant wing of the National Party. Then um, National sort of responded to that. They started, it came out with a policy uh, sort of opening the door towards GMO and in, in, in farming, which was seemed quite forward-thinking, and hats off to Judith Collins for leading that. And then they, the second part of it was, as had been teased a bit in advance was riding back from another cross-party accord after the, the housing density one uh, a couple of weeks earlier. 
he waka ekanoa is no good for them anymore and they kicked the old cow burp can down the paddock uh, till 2030. And that was seen very much as an attempt to win back the vote that had been had, had, had fallen away towards ACT. It all played out at field days. Obviously, we were all there at field days. I assume you guys didn't see you there, but I assume we were all there in our red bands. Um, ben, it seems to me like it's kind of a crucial moment now in terms of whether we see it in a poll, and I don't know. But the strategy, and tell me if you think this, this summary is wrong, of trying to win back the vote from ACT, and there are various rationales to put forward to it. You know, it might be just building the base. It might be because of concern about number of list seats that National would get. Mm. Other people have advanced the idea that it's designed to make the uh, prospective coalition look a bit less right-wing, by having, a, which is sort of a roundabout way of doing it, becoming more right-wing in order to look less right-wing. I don't know. Um, it, the, the risk, of course, is that you could build... Your the, the the national could increase its vote, but the right block could become smaller by alienating some people in the middle. Do you think it is? Do you think that the that it'll bear fruit this approach? Yeah, I think in terms of the agriculture policy, that that really is national sort of panicking a bit about their traditional base. Active, I think we've talked about it before. Active being very bullish on their chances in those rural electorates. Um, their analysis is that uh, farmers didn't didn't uh, turn against National in the last election. They just sort of sat it out. They just weren't enthused enough mm. to come out for anyone. Um, and so they think that they, they that over the last three years, they've been able to sort of s stir that population up. Um, you know, and, and National, look, you know, it's, it's, this, it's in, in the same way as if Labour thought it was losing the unions. You know, this is this is pretty fundamental right. stuff for National. Mm. Um, it, it, it's, you know, even if it is a relatively small part of the vote, it's one that's sort of really existential for them. You the know? backbone. Yeah, and is so I think that, the you know, the, I, I think that there was probably a little bit of panic and, and you sort of see that, you know, in agriculture – more than any other area, they really are very close to ACT. That's Agriculture is the one area where they've adopted a sort of ACT-like anti-regulatory policy, you know, um, the two-in, uh, what is it, two-out-one-in yeah. policy for new regulations, um, which is an old ACT policy. It sounds like it's, something that Rodney Hyde would have said. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so, uh, you know, they're really trying to close any gap there. Um, because, you know, yeah... The logic of MMP is that the larger party should always be going towards the centre and they should leave the fringe or the, the edge to their, mm. their minority partner. National probably are cognizant, though, that ACT is looking like a very... is, look, is starting to look like a bigger and bigger and more significant partner. Um, you know, if, if you're providing sort of... You know, if there's a sort of three-to-one ratio of major party to minor party... That gives the minor party, you know, a lot of heft. Again, it's like these sort of numbers that they don't mean anything in reality, right? And it, you know, really, it's the effect on the electorate is essentially the same if 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 National has fifty eight seats and Act has four. As in terms if, of the way it plays, yeah. yeah. As if but around National around a cabinet table, forty it's, it's and twenty two. But yeah, around the cabinet table, and just and just in terms of the sort of psychological sort of sense. But yes, also the number of ministers that you have, who you know. But, and David Seymour has been spending a lot of time making it very clear 
that he is not going to be a lapdog, that he's not going to just go along with things for the sake of a change of government. Right? That, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, th- I think ACT saw what happened when they didn't sort of um, six, well, first of all, when they had no discipline, and secondly, when they didn't uh, differentiate themselves enough from National in two thousand eight to two thousand eleven, where Hyde managed to take them from five MPs uh, down to zero. Uh, well, one new one, John Banks. Um, so, you know, rationally, National should just be trying to get that exact median voter plus one, and that should be what they train all their efforts on. In reality, though, they are jostling for position with ACT because they want to minimise the impact ACT has on their government. I think what really is freaking National out is the thought that potentially Seymour could get enough votes that he'd be able <clears throat> to leverage or to demand that he gets made Minister of Finance. And I think that's why they keep allowing themselves to get drawn further to the right. I understand why National are smarting over the rural vote because, you know, they lost some key rural electorates last time. But, mm. but you know, I've heard a lot of people say that although those, um, those electorates flipped to Labour, it wasn't because... There was a there was like a, a massive ideological shift in those seats. In fact, a, a lot of people say that farmers were voting for Labour because they were scared of the Greens having um, too much sway in, in in a potential government, and the writing was on the wall that that Labour was going to win that election. Can I just say too that in terms of kicking cans like into the paddock, like that's really not good for livestock. Okay, just make a note about that. Let's talk about as well one of the other news lines of recent times, which was uh, Christopher Luxon. I think it was, I think it was up in Helensville when they were announcing the agriculture policy ahead of Field Day. It was captured by a by a camera on a mic saying to somebody that we have become a very negative, wet, whiny, inward-looking country. And I'm quite keen to know your thoughts on that. Go around quickly. Ben, very negative? Yes or no? Yep. Annabelle? Yeah. Yep. Wet? Extremely wet. Extremely what? Wet. The government's well-being like, framework has done nothing about this winter's wetness. Yeah. Been quite wet underfoot. Mm. Field days is quite dry. We all know that. Is field all days like Matatini for rural Pākehās? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is. It's, it's like Glastonbury it's without shopping. any music. You're just um, in a field. Like muddy. Yeah, just in a, a field. field. Whiny, Ben? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. To be honest, I've heard people say all of those things about you two, but they find me delightful. <laughs> inward looking. Inward looking. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Pretty inward looking. Yeah. <laughs> so... I mean, correct. He's correct. And this, is, this is one of those... Um, it's a Kinsley gaff. It's, it's named it's, it's, after Michael Kinsley, who, who founder of Slate, which is where the gaff is where you say something that everyone knows to be true, but you can't be seen to say. <laughs> it's one of those. It's, it's one of those, like, why are you booing me? I'm right kind of <laughs> moments. I mean, he's... Of course he's right. He's like, and it was, I think this is an interesting feature of Christopher Luxon's leadership, right? Is that he's he's one of these sort of jonky, kind of come, came, yeah, local boy, made good, come back kind of things. 
But, he, you know, it, it was really interesting. You mean he went on a OE and earned lots of money? Yeah, and then came okay. back. And But what was really interesting, he became the leader of... Uh, of the National Party, and he would have these advertisements in an empty stadium and say, this is how many young people we lost to Australia. Yeah. Under my prime ministership, we're going to bring them back. Christopher Luxon, all of his first early speeches as leader about the economy were talking about how, how we can provide the best opportunity for our kids to go overseas and, and make it over there. So he came back and he was like, I care about you all so much. I'm going to help you get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Did Luxon say that before or after he went to field days? It was before. Oh, was it? Because, like, if he said that after field days, it would be, like, kind of justified. But but Hipkins, Hipkins had a very workshopped gag, which was nevertheless quite effective, which is, you know, I haven't seen anyone here who's negative, wet, whiny and inward-looking, but I haven't bumped into Christopher Luxon yet. Th that is one feature of Hipkins. Like, he really, he telegraphs his jokes so <laughs> much. Like, uh, you know, like when he had done the, you know, spread your legs, which was an amusing, yeah. funny gaff thing. Yeah. And then the next day, he sort of turned up with it on a mug and sort of... You know, I think people find that quite endearing. Which, I mean, he's, which, I think people find that reasonably endearing. It, it you know, wasn't the only mugging that was going on. Oh. You know, is he kind of like, you know, he did sort of hold it up, kind of taking almost like a tentative sip, but like keeping it on camera and sort of like raising his brows, hopefully. That, but, you know, but I'm coming, really like, here like, for those kind of gags. Yeah. Um, coming back to the, the, the Lux and Key thing, mm. we've, you know, we had Lux and as well with the, the thing about um, whether or not people should have more babies, you know, a throwaway remark, which people got very excited about. A few of these sort of things which aren't really big. There was something about John Key. He turned that into a strength because he said, I can't believe these people are getting all hit up. Um, everybody just sort of, he sort of had an ability to shrug it off and bring. He'd say, well, I, bring I, well, I can't. Know. I've had a vasectomy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then that would have been the news cycle for the next week. Yeah. And, and everybody would have forgotten all about the GCSB or whatever they were asking. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> That's maybe someone suggesting that to Lisa. We need to forget the Tesla. You need to get the snap, mate. <laughs> but again, right? Like, to, like, in terms of how mainstream, you know, reproduct, you know, rate of replacement, reproductive fertility discourses, it was on the cover of the Economist that week, right? <laughs> like, you know, sort yeah. of empty swing, you yeah. know, like, um, you know, but but then, you know, the sort of, I, I think that was an example of, you know, Labour really reaching out way too far on a limb in terms of their efforts well, to paint a Well, although, well, you know, I think a, a lot of women. Yeah. We're kind of annoyed by it. I, th I think the thing with, with Luxon is, you know, as we've already talked about ad nauseum, is because of his spiritual beliefs, there's some tender points around that area. And so some people just feel like it's not a, a thing that he should be joking about. For the record, I've had five kids, so I feel like I've done a lot of heavy lifting in that yeah. department. Th thank you for your service. Yeah, but you're a, bit you're, like, you're a bit like measuring a recession. That's in the past. You know, <laughs> That's true. That's true. I know. Yeah, what have you I'm done in for recession us until I get a mukupuna. <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah, you get this is going to be the second election in a year you haven't reproduced. Yeah. Like, I, yeah. Since Waimahi arose. Literally, Omiha Pearl, who's sitting out there, she was born the day before the election in 1999, and as a newborn bubba, I walked down to the <laughs> yeah. election booth with my brand new baby, thinking I was so neat. Oh, beautiful. Hey, uh, no, it was, well, one thing, one final thing about Luxon. Um, 
I th- I kind of think he should have doubled down on it. I, I feel like part of the problem that he's had with connecting with people is, I mean, he's got to be a hard ass somewhere down there, right? You know, to make it to the top of the corporate ladder, Yeah. you know, there are certain skills it requires, certain skills it doesn't require, but it requires you to be pretty tough. And I, I, I don't sort of believe this sort of, you know, totally self-effacing, oh, you know, I just... Uh, hey, how you doing? Yeah, like, Every you know, and, and when people... But what if that mode is, like, really ferocious? And when if... When like, he what was... if steam comes out of his head when he <laughs> moves into... I'm scared to <laughs> he, he should have doubled down. I th- uh, the thing is, I think, just like us, I think most people agreed with him when he said that. And he should have just doubled down and said, yeah, it's true. Stop whining. You know, be Mayor Quimby off The Simpsons. Yeah. You know, I've had it with you people. You're so a bunch instead, of fickle in, Instead, the, pat, the pattern is that he kind of gets, he gets sort of, it's a bit like Desley Simpson dragging Wayne Brown off the stage. And then and then Nicola Willis comes in and says what he meant to say was blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And instead, blah. he should stand up there and say... Quit your belly aching. Stop complaining about Christopher Luxon. I'm Go not the problem there. here. Go out there and root, New yeah. Zealand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, right. <laughs> that's why we're depressed. That's why we're whining. That's right. Be like newsroom and have some raw politics. Like, I mean, it's just, yeah, I, you know, I, I think that the New Zealand electorate, Helen Clark was the Prime Minister for nine years. The New Zealand electorate respects somebody who will call them on their bullshit. <laughs> Let's talk about the Green Party uh, tax policy, wealth and income policy. I think they call it 45% tax rate and income over 180,000, 2.5% wealth tax on assets over $2 million, uh, asset threshold, something or other. Um, and the idea is there'd be a universal gener- gener- guaranteed income thing, not not a UBI quite, but um, with a $10,000 tax-free threshold, uh, $385 per week for all New Zealanders after a year or two. After all the David Parker stuff, Annabelle, there was the, you know, the the big report, then there was this, there was all of the, the, the study into the however many richest New Zealanders it was, putting that capital gains stuff back onto the table. Is this a runner or do you think Labour will just snuff it out? I dare say that Labour will try to snuff it out, but depending on, on you know, what plays out in the election, they might be forced to take on significant tracks of it if mm. they if they um if they want to govern with the Greens. Um I, I like that it says that it can have um end child p- poverty a lot more quickly than um the current track that we're on and it, it looks like a well thought out policy I thought. Yeah they 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 were they had, they had all the proper numbers crunched and mm. in all sorts of ways. Ben what do you think I mean, credible. one of the one of the things that seemed smart about it to me because we're into this territory now of bottom lines and rulings out and all that sort of stuff that happens in MP the elections, which can be a bit tiresome, but perhaps necessary. The Greens got theirs out kind of early, and at least so that there will be a bit of fresh air for people to talk about it and mm. to debate its, its pros and cons before Labour comes along and it goes, got a good run. actually, yeah. this is the policy. Yeah. And yeah, it got a good run. Um, it was, it, it is an internally coherent policy. Um, you know, it sounds pretty well thought out. Um, if you were to look at it, run the numbers as they've suggested, you'd say, yeah, it looks reasonably good. In in practice, a wealth tax is sort of fraught with problems in the sense that because you're taxing the same amount, the same wealth every year, mm. um, you'll find that people will not hold their wealth in New Zealand. You know, they'll make money in New Zealand and then move it overseas, right? But um, so, you know, doomed to failure that way. But at the same time, 
you know, yeah, like, you know, it shows that they're actually taking the policy seriously uh, this time. So I, I thought, you know, overall a net positive for them. Net positive. Net positive. Again, won't won't help it won't help them in terms of Labour adopting it, but you know. Well, it's it's one of those things where it's hard to. You, typically, you'd imagine in an MMP system, there would were Labour and the Greens and Te Party Māori probably have enough to govern that you'd go, well, let's slice off part of this and and so on. But the practical politics of it are such that Labour, particularly given what's happened in previous elections, like in in twenty seventeen, for example won't be able to do that in a negotiation. They're going to have to set their policy and say, this is the policy, right? It's just hard to imagine much room for manoeuvre there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Quickly before we go, uh, Ming Foon. But, but they'll probably let somebody from the Greens be the Minister of Recycling. <laughs> Ming Foon. Ming, yeah, allow them to have Ming Foon. Have we got Ming Foon watch up? Recycle. Where is, in, whether or not he's actually... It's, it's like a recession. You don't, a, you don't know whether Ming Foon has resigned or not resigned until three months He said he hadn't resigned, later. but it had been... What? Le- well, no, he hadn't resigned. It was on the news this I? morning. But he'd written a letter to the Prime Minister saying he was about to resign, which is one of those things you kind of think, that's a little bit the head of a pin, Ming. At, at the point at which you're three days after the minister responsible for you has said you've resigned, is, irrespective of your personal feelings, you've, you've, <laughs> you've resigned. <laughs> yeah. seems pretty material. <laughs> at that point, it's no longer your choice as to whether you've resigned or not. Uh, just an update on that. I've received from correspondence being explained with it. In fact, I have resigned. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I resigned at the end of the first quarter. <laughs> I've been Resigned for many years now. What was it? Was it there was a? It was to do with um, a particular interest in a housing operation. Uh, while he had been overseeing the Human Rights Commission, involved in the Human well, Rights Commission, while he was involved in the Human Rights Housing, and then that came on top, of course, as well of the him uh, the donations thing, and that it included providing in-kind office space for Kerry Allen's campaign, though that was before she was Justice Minister. Anyway, was this inevitable, Ben? Was this now... I mean, it came out at pub time on a Friday, so I sort of... A lot of people, I don't think, noticed it, but did it did it seem as though there was only one option at that point? It's the sort of thing where, you know, I've got this rule, you know, anyone can make a mistake once, right? Mm. And a lot of people make one mistake in their political lives. As soon as you find they've made two mistakes, you have to get rid of them because there will be infinitely more. Yeah. And, uh, you know, no one just makes two mistakes. Um, This is the second uh, failure to declare an interest that has been discovered in terms of Ming Foon. At that point, you just sort of, you cut your losses. Um, you cut your losses and you accept his resignation, oh. <laughs> whether, he, whether he has yet officially tendered it or not. That's right. It's, it's travelling in the in the snail mail. Annabelle Ming Foon's contribution. Ming's a uh, you know someone that I really admire. Obviously from the east coast. Mm. Um, former speaker, mayor. Former mayor. Speaker of Te Reo Māori. Um, has been a, a beautiful ambassador for Te Reo Māori. Um, the, the thing with that job as Race Relations Commissioner, formerly conciliator, is that the better job you do, the more loathed and despised you are. It right. really is yeah. a poison chalice yeah. of a job. And I think Ming was doing a really good job, but I also would have expected him to be politically aware enough that he would need to dot every eye and cross every T because you have such a huge target on your back 
in that role. So for him to make a mistake like this twice in a row, he there really is not much of an option but to feel like resigning and then perhaps actually resigning. That's Anna Willie Mather. Thank you. Thank you, Ben Thomas. Thank you, Joe Butler. I'm Toby Manho. Thank you. Goodbye. Good night. See you. Bye. Kia ora e te iwi, te Ahe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.